Okay, well, so we begin session one of our inquirers classes, and session one is on the creeds of the church. And the word uh, creed comes from a, a Latin word which means uh, I believe. And the origin of the creeds in the church is that they, they were formulated by the church in response to heresy or wrong belief. That is, people came along in, in churches or in and around the churches and started teaching things that people thought didn't sound quite right. And what the church did in, in, in response to that was to clarify, here's what we really believe. And we'll talk a little bit more about the details of that as it pertains to the in a little bit. There are two main creeds that the church uses in worship, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> the Apostles' Creed is probably in origin the older of the two. Some form of the Apostles' Creed probably dates back to about the second century. We can see sort of snippets of a creed in 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, in its fully developed form, the Apostles' Creed didn't reach its current form probably until the 400s, but it probably something like that was required of belief for baptism as early as the second century. Um, the other creed the church uses is the Nicene Creed, which we recite every Sunday at the Eucharist. It's the product of two ecumenical councils, the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople in the 300s. There's a, a third creed, which has been a part of the Anglican tradition, called the, the, the Athanasian Creed. I reproduced that for you in your notes, so you can take that home with you and look at it, um, which in the original prayer books was required actually to be recited on certain major feast days, and it remains an authoritative statement of belief about the divinity and humanity of Christ and the Trinity in particular, so it's, it's, it's an important creed to know something about. So there are the creeds and, and uh, w which ones they are and a little bit where they come from. But, wh but why do, still people say, why do we have creeds? People who say they believe in God, and you, you, everyone has you know, neighbors, friends, everyone says, well, I believe in God. But when you start getting down to what it is they believe about God, you, you discover people believe vastly different things. And so what at first looks like a common belief Upon further review, you say, hey, we're, we're really at, at, at opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and it's important to understand who God is because you cannot know someone and have a relationship with someone of the intimacy we speak of in the Christian tradition, God dwelling in us, we dwelling in him, unless you know, you know who he is. Uh, for, you know, if you're going to marry someone, you, you, you wouldn't just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter any old... <laughs> any old other person will do, you find out some things about them first, you know, where the person lives, what they're like, what their interests are, and that's what attracts you, and, and, the, and the character and the virtue of the person is what, is what draws you into a relationship of intimacy. And so with God, knowing God, the creeds, though they may be foundational, and certainly there's more to know about God, they're important foundations. If we don't know these things about God, we can't have a true relationship with him. A lot of people say, but we have the, the Bible, and, and certainly in our, in our culture, which is a, a largely Protestant evangelical culture, people talk about the Bible, we have the Bible so we don't need the creeds. But the problem is that from the very beginning of the church, there were people who called themselves Christians who taught things that were other than orthodox. Uh, we see it early in the, in, in the scriptures in 1 Timothy, a passage I give in the notes, um, where these false teachers are always threatening the church. And so we have the scriptures, but yet we still need what is the authorized interpretation of the scriptures. We still need the right understanding. 
<coughs> and the creeds give the church's authoritative summaries of biblical doctrine on the central points of faith. These are the, this is what the church always believed from the very beginning. And the whole church had this in common. And we should note that as that, as, as statements of the universal faith of the ancient church, the apostles and Nicene creeds are to be distinguished from what, you, what some churches call their confessions of faith. A, con, a, church's, a particular church's confession of faith is distinctive things about that church. <clears throat> Whereas the Nicene Creed was something that, that, and the Apostles' Creed are things that every Christian says amen to. And, and it's an important distinction. Okay. The creeds, this, this should lead to a little bit larger digression about the notion of tradition. The, churches, the creeds are part of the church's tradition. And sometimes tradition is seen as a, a negative thing in our culture. You have people say, well, Jesus railed against the Pharisees. You know, you, you make uh, the commandments of God of no effect by your tradition. <clears throat> but if we look in the New Testament, we see also that tradition is spoke of in a positive way. St. Paul tells the Thessalonians to, to uh, stand fast and hold the traditions which he had handed on to them. And he also talks about in, in Corinthians when he talks about handing over the Lord's Supper, he received from the Lord that which he delivered to them. That's the language of tradition. So tradition is also central to the Christian uh, uh, church in the New Testament. Tradition does a few things for us. It teaches us what the early church believed about Bible passages that are unclear. We can, in our discussion afterwards, unpack a couple examples of how that works. Tradition also informs us about things that the Bible doesn't tell us about. St. Paul delivered the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians. It doesn't say a thing in there about exactly what they were to do during the Lord's Supper. The tradition, however, the, the writings of the church fathers and the liturgies that come down to us do show us that. So there are extra biblical things that are important to let us know about the early church. Of special importance for understanding tradition are what we call the seven, or what are called the seven ecumenical councils. And these are gatherings of the church that took place from A.D. 325 uh, through A.D. 787. And I provide for you, uh, for later perusal, uh, an addendum on these ecumenical councils that give you a, about a paragraph on each one and lets you know what the major teaching of, of, of each is. Um, the me- ecumenical councils met, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier with regards to the creed, for the purposes of clarifying right belief in contrast to wrong belief. Somebody was circling things in the church that didn't seem quite right, so the church gathered to, to clarify what was right in response to it. We should note that um, the, the ancient and universal consensus concerning the faith that we call tradition is to be distinguished from practices that may, may become a tradition in the church. Not everything that churches do that are traditional or, or a tradition are, rise to the level of, the, of tradition. And there are some things that, the church, that some churches may call traditional that may, maybe ought to be done away with. Maybe they aren't ancient and universal. Maybe they are even something peculiar to... Uh, 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 and it's a nuanced discussion, which we can also unpack a little bit afterwards, because um, well, th- there are certain things the church does, and just because it wasn't exactly done anciently doesn't mean yeah, I get rid of it. It's a nuanced discussion. Nonetheless, we, shouldn't, we should realize that not everything that some church, wow, it's a tradition, we've had that candle there forever, you know, it means 40 years or something. That's not the same as, as the tradition that gives us the Nicene Creed and the Ecumenical Councils. Okay, let's dive in and talk about the, <clears throat> the creeds, and, and uh, <clears throat> what I'm going to try to do is, is 
highlight what I consider to be central aspects of, of the theology of the creeds and the points they make. The point about theology, of course, is not just what it teaches, but also what it means and significance for our faith. If we believe certain things, that ought to govern the way we look at the world and ought to affect our lives. Belief is not something you sort of have in your head that doesn't apply anywhere else. The first paragraph of both creeds summarizes monotheism, the belief in one God that is carried over from the Old Testament. And this is a rejection of the ancient pagan idea that there are many gods. Genesis 1, the creation narrative in the Bible, is really an anti-pagan polemic which, in which God names and, and creates and names the various aspects of creation that the ancient pagans thought were divine. And so it shows us that there isn't all these other things weren't in fact gods, but, but there is but one God. The Bible teaches that God was motivated by love when he created the world. This is intimated in Genesis in the, in the word that is used for the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. It's a word used for a mother bird hovering over her young elsewhere. And this also contrasts one God, creator of heaven and earth, contrasts the motive of creation, contrasts with other ideas of why the world was created. Um, the ancient idea was that creation was a result of maybe wars between the gods. The modern idea is more that it's all just a kind of a random occurrence. It just kind of happened. Either way, our view of life, the way we look at the world, will be governed by our theology of creation. If we think, if we believe, that the world is created by an almighty and benevolent God who created the world with meaning and purpose for a particular end, then our lives will be seen as having meaning and purpose. If we believe, as the ancient pagans did, that the world came about because a couple of gods got to fighting about it and needed some menial labor and we were, the, we were the guys, we might have a different view of life. Or if we accept the modern idea that it's all a random occurrence, that's another view of life. I'm just, I just happen to be here. I came from nowhere and I'm going nowhere. That's, that's the theology that leads to the nihilism of the modern world, the sense of meaningless and purposelessness. And so the doctrine of creation is incredibly important, and belief in one God, maker of heaven and earth, from the Christian perspective, carries the sense that, that there's but one God. He created the world out of love with meaning and purpose. And also we should note that the Bible teaches that creation is good. <clears throat> there's there's uh, Eastern notions uh, and, and, and uh, heretical notions that the created world is actually an evil thing. And the idea in some of these theories of, of redemption is that to be saved is to escape from the material world into the world of pure spirit. And that, that's kind of the Hindu idea of redemption. The idea of reincarnation, uh, hate to disappoint people, or anxious to come back, it means you're not there yet. You're not there until you escape it. But that's not the Christian idea of, of redemption. Our idea of redemption is the resurrection of the body, is to be saved not from the creation, but, but in the creation. And, and the ultimate idea of redemption from a Christian perspective is a created order in which we are together physically doing, doing physical things. We can talk more about that too. And of course the incarnation highlights the goodness of the creation. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us.
<clears throat> the creeds also teach us that God is Father. And whatever may be the limitations of gender distinctions applied to God, it remains the fact of the revelation that God has chosen to reveal himself as Father, not as Mother, or not in some androgynous category. And the Bible also makes it clear that gender is central to the revelation. God is a father who has a son, and the son gets married to a bride, the church. And the whole redemptive mystery is understood as a nuptial mystery, as St. Paul makes clear in Ephesians. This is the principal reason that the church does not ordain women as priests. The, ordina- the opposition to women's ordination has nothing whatsoever to do with Uh, talent or modern notions of equality. It has to do with the accurate representation of the being and nature of God. The apostolic ministry represents Christ at the altar. Because the mystery of our redemption is a nuptial mystery involving a bridegroom and a bride, it's important that the people who represent these parts of the mystery can you know, bear the icon that, that can, can, can represent accurately what they, what they represent. We should, we should note that to say that a woman can represent a man is to say that sex is interchangeable or unimportant for the given purpose. And this is also the root of, of, of the homosexual theology. And it's not really a surprise that the ordination of women and the acceptance of homosexual behavior in the church are related theological errors, and they've come up in the church at the same time because they're based on the same idea, that sex is interchangeable. And so we should note that. So the, so the creed teaches God as Father, and that's something that's... It is under attack in the modern world. Um, uh, our own tradition, uh, in some of its heretical manifestations, has prayers to our Mother in Heaven, and... Anyone who's been around the Episcopal Church enough knows, will have seen that at some point in time, but you'll never see it here. Both creeds state that God is almighty, and almighty means all-powerful. It means that God is in control. There is no equal and opposite force that can thwart the will of God. Satan is not the opposite of God. As Revelation 12 teaches us, Satan is the opposite of Michael the archangel. They wore it out, but God remains above the fray. Now, the doctrine of God being almighty is very important because we cannot trust God unless he is, in fact, almighty. If, if, if he were not almighty, how could we trust him to do what he said he's going to do? To save us from sin and death, to raise us from the dead, to bring us to the kingdom of heaven. And there are modern theologies that hold that God isn't really almighty. Maybe... Um, maybe he's just warring it out with some of the other lesser deities, and maybe you know we, we can't really we can't really trust him to do all that he said he's going to do, and, and there's a certain uncertainty about it. But that's, but one can debate those things. That's not what that's not what the scriptures say. It's not what the creed says. Is God is Almighty. Now we of course have to reconcile the idea with God, that God is Almighty with the nature of the world that we see. Um, there's crime, there are wars, persecution of Christians all over the place, sin. Unbelief or rampant. Um, the Bible recognizes this tension between the idea that God is almighty and the current state of affairs. The Bible recognizes that a definitive victory was won on the cross, but the full implications of that victory have not been realized within time and space. 
the Bible teaches there will come a time, Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge the quick and the dead, when he will appear and forcefully subdue every evil and impenitent soul and spirit. But now is not the time. Now is a time of witness. Now is a time when salvation is freely offered to all. Now is a time when people can change, because when the end comes, there is no more change. Things are fixed. And we should note that the omnipotence of God is governed by the love of God, and the love of God requires some continued measure of human freedom. God wants us to respond to his love shown on the cross with love. And the free response of love can only be given by souls who are also free to reject it. Indeed, genuine acts of sacrifice and selflessness can only be carried out by souls who are also free to do what is evil. But still we believe in this, this, and what we're talking about here really is, is the sort of contrast between you know, God's omnipotence and human free will, we still believe in the end that God's, the power of God, the omnipotence of God triumphs. And we believe that the same divine power that brought the glory of resurrection out of Good Friday will bring the glory of resurrection out of the current mess of the created order. And he, and he has the power to, to bring it to pass that way. And that's one of the things we say we believe in God, all, the Father Almighty, that's one of the things we believe. We believe that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Okay. Paragraph two of the creeds <coughs> talks about God the Son. And there are two principal things that the second paragraph teaches us about Jesus. The first is that he is fully man. The earliest heresy in the church was the belief that the Son of God was, was divine, but only appeared to be human. It was called the docetic heresy, after a word that means to appear. So the idea was that the Son of God came down and assumed a human form, but just appeared to be human, so he could tell us about God. And so, but but his, his actual suffering of physical hunger, his actual suffering on the cross, was only apparent, but not real, because he wasn't genuinely human. And... One of the things that we can see in the Apostles' Creed, when we understand the Apostles' Creed was, was written to address this, we can see these cadence phrases that speak of Jesus' humanity. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Those are all physical things, and what they actually do is they cover the common states of human existence in which everybody shares. We're all conceived and born we all suffer and die. We're all buried. Even the descent into hell, which I'll talk about in a minute, is nothing more than a description of typical death. The body goes to the ground, and the spirit goes to the place where the departed spirits go, which we call hell or Hades. So what, what, the, what the Apostles' Creed really stresses there is the humanity of Jesus. There are two distinctions in the, in the Apostles' Creed between Jesus and us. The first is conceived by the Holy Ghost, so we believed he, he, he was conceived genuinely in the womb of, of Mary, but without the agency of a human father. And the other distinction is that the third day he rose again from the dead. And, and, and his resurrection, he enters into the human experience, lives through the full range of human experience, dies for us. When he rises from the dead, he expands the horizon of human, well, I hate to use the word, human potential, human possibility. Uh, 
that, so that opens up that, that, that form of life to us who share in his life. Now we have the hope that we too will rise from the dead. Um, we should note, of course, that his genuine humanity is different than ours in that he is without sin. And it's a point I, I like to make because people sometimes don't get this. When they talk about Jesus being human, they, they, they say, well, that means he was weak like we were. And yes, there's a sense of weakness, the sense that he had a physical body that could die, but Jesus' humanity was a perfect humanity in the sense that in Christ, this is humanity the way it is supposed to be. So to be human like Jesus is not to be weak and sinful. It is to be live life in the body according to the will of God in the fullest sense without sin. And that's what we aim for. We fall short of it. But, but, but it, it's important to note that being human like Jesus does not mean being weak. It means being genuinely human. We talk about that a little bit more afterwards also. By the time of the Council of Nicaea, the, the prevailing threat to orthodoxy had changed. Everyone accepted that Jesus was human. The question came to be, is he really God? Or if he is God, in what sense is he really God? And the question was raised by a priest whose name was Arius, who was in Alexandria in Egypt. And he taught, or his followers, there's some debate in history how much is, we should lay on Arius' feet and how much it is those lousy followers of his. Um, he taught that Jesus was the most exalted and important being in the creation, but that in the great chasm that exists between the creator and the creation, Jesus belonged on the creation side, albeit as the most important <coughs> of created beings. <coughs> the, the modern uh, people who hold this heresy are Jehovah's Witnesses, who believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, whom they hold to be the most glorified being but yet still part of the creation. In the second paragraph of the Nicene Creed, we will see, and incidentally, if you want to <clears throat> glance at these as we talk about them, I have copies of the creeds for you on page, um, well, there's some, page eight. Um, the second paragraph of the Nicene Creed <clears throat> is an expansion of the Apostles' Creed. After we affirm the belief in one Lord Jesus Christ, it talks about the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God, very from the Latin, which means true, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Those are all aimed at, at the Arian heresy. And the certain key statements are begotten of the Father before all worlds. In other words, it's called the eternal generation of the Son. And what, what the church taught in response to Arius was, there never was a time when the Son was not. It's called the eternal generation in that it, it's the one way the human analogy breaks down. You can say, well, a, a mother begets a child like the father begot the Son. But in human terms, there's a time when there's a mother with no child, and then comes the child. <clears throat> what the Nicene Council taught is, the Father's begetting of the Son is from eternity. There is no time element in it. There never was a time when the Son was not. And that falls in the category of mystery. <laughs> um, being of one substance with the Father um, comes from the Greek word homoousios, uh, and the Arians, actually, as a footnote in history, the Arians used a Greek word 
that was, was homoiousios. And so the difference between the two things was one little letter between being an orthodox and a heretic. Homoi means of like substance with the Father. So the, the church upheld that Jesus was of one substance with the Father. And this follows on the teaching of, of John 1, where we're told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And it tells how the Father created through the Son. And so the doctrine that comes out of this is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is God because he was begotten of the Father before all worlds. He is man because he was born of the Virgin Mary. <clears throat> the English word that we use to refer to his divinity and humanity is nature. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus has a divine and human nature, which are united in his one person. So to be orthodox and not heretical here, that's the language. Two natures, one person. Okay. Paragraph 3 of the Creeds talks about God the Holy Spirit. Genesis says, in the beginning, the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. Um, the Spirit was present in the beginning with the Father and the Son. <clears throat> Acts tells us that lying to the Holy Spirit is described as lying to God. The Nicene Creed affirms the divinity of the Holy Spirit when it says, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. You can't worship something that is, that is created, only the Creator. So if we worship and glorify the Spirit, He must be God with the Father and the Son. And so, taken together, then, the Creed teaches that the God is Trinity. And the doctrine of Trinity states that the one God who created the world exists from eternity as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are united in one substance of being. So the operative terms there are three persons, one substance, one God. We can talk about some of the heresies concerning that um, afterwards. One way to understand the Trinity, that's always helped me, so I always repeat it, was pointed out by the Church Father St. Augustine. He pointed out that in any, lo any loving relationship involves three, a, a lover, a beloved, and love itself. And so he explained the Trinity in terms of, of love. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of their love. And this helps us to understand a little bit about God. If we say God created the world out of love, it, it helps understand that the love of God is not an abstract principle, but a product of a loving relationship. And, and I, I think it helps us understand more the idea that God is love. He's not just an abstract principle of love, but a loving relationship. And this, again, because God is love and a loving relationship, this is out of that love he created the world, out of that love he redeemed us. Um, by contrast, we should note a Unitarian God, and a lot of times you'll ask a confirmation class, why did God create the world? They'll say, well, he's lonely. And if you think about it, if, if God is really all alone, I mean, you say, well, he's God, you can handle all alone, but, 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 but that God is Trinity tells us that his solitude is Trinitarian. He has love within himself, so he's not alone. So his motive, for, his motive for creating is the overflow of the love he already has into the created order. Okay. All Christian theology, theology builds upon those, these two cardinal doctrines. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and God is Trinity. Errors with regard to these doctrines are called in classical Christian terms heresies. 
And if we say someone is, is a typically traditionally we say someone is a cult, like we talk about the Mormons across the street being a cult, it, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go drink Kool-Aid like Jonestown or something like that. It means that they are in error on one of these two cardinal doctrines, the belief that Jesus is fully God and fully man, the belief that God is Trinity. That is historically the, the defining thing that makes you a Christian or makes you on the outside of that classical definition. I'm going to unpack that more afterwards also. A couple other notes, um, other teachings of the Creed. He descended into hell. We should clarify that for people. The hell of the Apostles' Creed is Hades, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Sheol, and it was simply the, the, the abode of the, depart, the departed. When you died, your body went in the ground, your spirit went to the place where departed spirits go. And the, the primary thing the Creed is telling us is that Jesus died a normal death. However, the tradition of the church tells us, and so does First Peter, that Jesus, when he descended into the place of departed spirits, brought the gospel there and, and made its implications touch the abode of the dead so that those who were his from before, uh, he took with him, and it confirms the judgment on those who were there who were not his. That's the church's teaching on that. Hades is to be distinguished from Gehenna. When Jesus says, you know, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, because it's better to go into uh, hell with uh, one eye, having two eyes, or going to heaven with one eye than, than having two eyes to go into hell, that's Gehenna. And the teaching of the scriptures is that at the last judgment, Hades is folded into Gehenna. It says that in Revelation, that, 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 that Hades and death is thrown into the lake of fire, which you can we unpack that imagery, but that's what it teaches. So Hades is intermediate state of the, of the departed that becomes the eternal state, just as for the redeemed, paradise being with Christ in the intermediate state becomes the new heavens and the, and the new earth of the resurrection. We can see the distinctions about the intermediate state in, in, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, Creed tells that Jesus will come again. We, we get the promise of the return of Jesus um, in Acts, just before the ascension. God will judge a sequence of men by Jesus Christ, Romans tells us. And this is a very important teaching because we live in a world where people don't think you're going to be held accountable. And as Christians, we believe that, that all sin will be accounted for, either by the cross through repentance and forgiveness, or on the day of judgment when it's brought to light and confronted. It also um, uh, highlights something else. I'm jumping again a little bit on resurrection, but part of the idea of redemption that people get wrong in our culture is that you just die and go to heaven and life just kind of goes on and on and on, when the actuality of the Christian hope is it's moving towards the conclusion, which is the day of judgment and the day of resurrection. It's not an endless succession of just dying and going to heaven. So we look forward to the return of Christ in glory, a teaching which is throughout the New Testament. Creed also talks about the, about the church. And we should note in the third paragraph of the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. All the things after the Holy Ghost are things that come about through the ministry of the Holy Ghost. The church is created by the Holy Spirit. We receive the forgiveness of sins through the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of all these things are, are hopes that, that flow out of the Holy Spirit. I copy in the notes a couple uh, uh, questions in the Book of Common Prayer because it succinctly states the creedal doctrine of the church, where it asks, how is the church described? 
the church is described in the creeds as one holy Catholic and apostolic. And these four words are called in the tradition of the church the four marks of the church. Church is one, church is holy, church is Catholic, and church is apostolic. And we, you can read the definition. We talk about those during the discussion. The Apostles' Creed also expresses belief in the communion of the saints. This means that the Holy Spirit unites the members of the church into one common body that cannot be separated by time and space. As hymn 207 says, one body, we, one body, who partake, that's of, of, the, of the communion, with all thy saints on earth and saints at rest. The communion of the saints answers the human need for genuine, intimate, and mutually fulfilling relationship with others, as opposed to the false, shallow, and selfish nature of fallen human relationships. The greater part of the communion of the saints consists of those who have already died. Think about that often, but, but most of the faithful are departed. Because death does not divide the church to church praise for the faithful departed in the liturgy, the church also believes that the departed saints pray for the living as much as they are able. However, there's some reticence in the Anglican tradition because of medieval abuses that, that were uh, practiced in, in the church as how, this, how that doctrine is expressed. Lastly, the creed talks about the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Again, the Christian hope is not merely that we will die and go to heaven. At death, our bodies go into the ground our spirits go to the place where departed spirits go. Our hope is for a reunion of those. Not in the very same form it died in, but we hope for a reunion of spirit and body, the, the, the body transformed like unto Christ's resurrection body. So we'll be raised from the dead and live new eternal lives in the body when the creation is restored to its original purpose and to the redemptive purpose God has in mind for it. And so eternal life is life in a body. And we should note that the creeds affirm the resurrection of Jesus and our own hope of resurrection. And that's central to the Christian hope, the hope of resurrection of the body. And if you look at the New Testament, you will see throughout that that is the hope, not merely to die and go to heaven. There's a couple mentions of that, and that we get to die. We, at death, we're with Christ in paradise. That's intermediate and expectant, waiting for the final act of resurrection.